you turn with me to John 14, and we'll look at verses 15 through 24, and as you're finding that text, let me pray for a moment. Our Father, we come now before you to really the pinnacle of Christian worship, and that is to open our Bibles and to hear what you have to say. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would take the truths that are presented by the Lord Jesus himself in John 14 and that you would just drive them so deeply into our hearts that it impacts how we speak, how we think, how we act, that we might become more like Christ, that we might be presented mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Impact our hearts this morning, we pray, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, I'm very eager to share this text with you this morning. It's been just an absolute delight to my own soul this week. It's watered my own heart and it's nourished and refreshed me, and so I, I hope that it'll do that for you as well. That's what I pray for every week, but in this particular case, uh, this is just a special text, a, a unique text. Jesus is in the midst of his farewell discourse in the upper room with his disciples in chapter 14. He's told them that he's going away, but then he's going to return. He has asserted to them that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, He's the only way to the Father. And he said that true believers, and we talked about this last time, will do kingdom tasks to the glory of the Father through the Son. And so this is what he's talked about now in chapter 14. And so we pick up now in verse 15, and we'll consider through verse 24. If you would follow along with me, John 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Well, one of the greatest areas of confusion regarding the Christian faith pertains to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, and there is great confusion Theological error uh, regarding the Holy Spirit abounds. I would say it's safe to say there's more error than there is truth being promulgated concerning the Holy Spirit, and it's spread really like a cancer to the detriment of the church. And so to just get our thinking straight here, I want to just begin by listing for you several errors that we ought to be aware of, we ought to be very wary of. The first error is the error of the experience-based Christian life the error of the experience-based Christian life. This says that the Christian life ought to be characterized by deeper, fuller, richer spiritual heights and encounters, and these are accomplished by what 
by seeking what many call more of the Holy Spirit, as if you can divide God. Uh, This is extremely dangerous because it counterfeits the true spirituality, which is grounded in obedience, not in experience. And this error essentially denigrates the Holy Spirit and reduces the Spirit of God to nothing more than a power source, a divine plug into which we plug our hearts and emotions to feel a certain way. And that, of course, leads to the the craziness and the chaos that's exhibited week after week in Pentecostal and charismatic settings in which emotional experience is king. And ironically, the, the churches that would say they're elevating the Holy Spirit are actually, in fact, denigrating and blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they would say he's nothing more than a power source. We would want to be aware of the error of post-salvation second experiences. The error of post-salvation second experiences. Pentecostals will take a right term and misuse it. They would call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not at all connected to the biblical doctrine of the Spirit of God. Wesleyans and other Wesley-related denominations would call this the second blessing And this is dangerous now because it really muddies the waters of the transformative nature of salvation from sin. Now, justification, which is our right standing before God, is not the emphasis, but now perfectionism becomes the emphasis. That after I receive this second experience, I am now super spiritual. And in fact, in some traditions, I am supposed to be sinless. And this downplays the act of salvation. The salvation is somehow just the warm-up for the really spiritual thing that's going to happen. But the Bible doesn't indicate that at all. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There is no gray. We don't go part way. Now, salvation has just become an appetizer for the real experience, so-called. So we are aware and want to be aware of the error of post-salvation second experience. We want to be aware of the error of false Christian joy. The error of false Christian joy. For the Pentecostal, Christian joy is a spiritual experience. It's an emotional state that you achieve, that you cultivate, that you go after. And the Holy Spirit's job is to work you into that. That's what he does. And so the emphasis is external on manifestations of joy. And so there's this pressure now to be smiley, to be bubbly, to exude an extrovert-like quality all the time. And naturally buoyant people tend to be attracted to this idea because they conclude, I must really be filled with the Spirit. No, you're just an outgoing person who happens to have bad theology. There's a difference. But this is very dangerous because true Christian joy has nothing to do with experience and often has nothing to do with emotion. It doesn't have anything to do with outward circumstances. True Christian joy is the fruit of the Spirit given in salvation from sin. At times, that is emotional, and we enjoy that. But it's not in any way connected to outward circumstances. Christian joy rides above emotion, rides above experience, rides above any sort of uh, outward expression. We want to be aware of the error of denying God's sovereignty. The error of denying God's sovereignty. 
when you have this emotion-seeking view of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this leads very quickly to the view that, A, not only does God exist essentially to bring external blessings into my life, but B, it's not God's will for you to suffer in any way. That's the next logical step. There is no teaching in the Pentecostal circles on how to be content in the midst of suffering. That doesn't exist. Rather, what you get is how to be delivered from your suffering. Because truly joyful and truly spirit-filled Christians are the ones who are delivered, and you poor slobs who haven't had that experience are the ones that are suffering. This is based on an oversimplified belief that suffering comes from Satan and blessing comes from God. That denies the sovereignty of God. The Bible says that everything comes from God. And yes, Satan may be working in your life, but it's only because God allowed him to. You read up on that, and you'll see that that's the case every single time. And so it denies the sovereignty of God. It makes God as a really, really strong guy who wins most of the time instead of a sovereign who wins every time. And then you have the error of, under, of misunderstanding being filled with the Spirit. The error of misunderstanding being filled with the Spirit. This error is especially prevalent in phrases like spirit-filled worship or a spirit-filled church. Every once in a while, I get an email that says, are you a spirit-filled church? What are they really saying? Are you a corporate gathering characterized by ecstatic emotional experience with a bunch of people trying to see who can out-spiritualize one another? That's what they're really asking. This can be manifested in false displays of speaking in tongues, of people falling over in what's commonly called being slain in the spirit, and all manner of crazy uh, manifestations in attempt to, to go higher, to get more, and to have more. And, and it becomes a, a, a craze. It becomes habitual. It becomes an addiction. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with emotions, and when I read of God the Father and I sing of God the Son and I think of God the Spirit, that ought to engender emotion. But that's based in truth, not based in just uh, making the music go louder. There are entire techniques for worship bands to elevate the key of the music at just the right time so as to psychologically and emotionally manipulate people into a more ecstatic experience. They're trained how to do that. So, yes, if we feel great emotion, it's because we have great truth to back it up. But the idea of being spirit-filled in worship in those circles focuses on seeking to generate an emotional high, and that's now mistaken for worship. And historically, an emphasis on so-called spirit-filled worship is always accompanied by a de-emphasis on the biblical gospel of Christ. Those two always go together. You de-emphasize the gospel and you emphasize this emotion. And that fifth error, that's what I'd like to address this morning, that misunderstanding of being filled with the Spirit. We've been going through John 13 and 14, and we're calling this the triumphant Christian life. And we've seen from those two chapters that the triumphant Christian life is, is very simply filled with the things that create or that are hallmarks of maturity, of growth, of true spiritual strength. And one of those things that we fill our lives with to have a triumphant Christian life, we're going to call the spirit-filled life. Bad theology doesn't get to take away good terms from us. And so the spirit-filled life is what we're going to look at. Now, that's a broad term. 
In the New Testament, the idea of being filled with the Spirit is used basically four ways. At times, there was a special empowerment related to the coming of Christ. That's the first way it's used. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from the womb. Luke 1 says this, Elizabeth, his mother, was filled with the Spirit when she was close to Jesus, who was still in Mary's womb. And this is not unlike the Old Testament filling of the Spirit for special tasks. This happened for a, to specific people for a specific time period for a specific purpose. And so there's the special empowerment related to the coming of Christ. In the New Testament, we also see a transitional time in which believers are now indwelt by the Spirit for the first time. The apostles would be in that category. Pentecost is the most notable example. Those who already believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but were not yet indwelt by the Spirit. In this case, the filling of the Spirit isn't connected to salvation, but to the inauguration of the new covenant, which includes now a people indwelt by the Spirit of God for the, for the first time in history. There's a third way that being filled with the Spirit is used, that there is now initial salvation in Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is indicative of true salvation. The indwelling and the filling, in that case, are used interchangeably. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Timothy 1, and, and other texts speak of that filling, the initial salvation in Christ. And then finally, you have the enablement of obedience and worship. The enablement of obedience and worship, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That's referring, by the way, to former pagan practices that these believers had, had uh, practiced in their pagan worship. But be filled with the Spirit. This filling of the Spirit isn't obtaining something that you don't have. It's to live in accordance with what you already have. In fact, the parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18 that we find in Colossians 3.16 says that the filling of the Spirit can be defined as letting the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, meaning you're enabled to worship, you're enabled to obey because you know the word of God. So what I want to do this morning using this text is really drill down on this concept of the Spirit-filled life and find out from the mouth of Christ himself some of the nuances and and the benefits of the Spirit-filled life. But I'm not going to do this message on the Holy Spirit as a to-do list, as something that you must strive to achieve. I I think that can actually border on making the ministry of the Holy Spirit overly mystical and putting undue emphasis on finding some secret to spirituality. So instead, I I think it's better to understand that the Spirit-filled life is not about getting more of God, It is about simply knowing and savoring and taking full advantage of what is already yours in Christ. And so this isn't so much of a to-do list. Now, if I were to try to present a summary theology of the ministry of the Spirit, we would be here for weeks and weeks. So we're going to just focus on these 10 verses or so. And as we continue working our way through John, you're going to see that in this farewell discourse of, of Jesus, it's going to be heavy on the Holy Spirit. Jesus is now preparing the apostles, the disciples, for the church age, the age of the Holy Spirit. So now we're going to see all kinds of references to the Spirit of God. And in these 10 verses, he's going to give them comfort. He's already said he's going away. He's speaking of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. He is leaving. Now, this would be extremely distressing to the disciples who they don't yet fully grasp that Jesus is not establishing his kingdom on earth yet. He's not grasping that 
he's going to leave the disciples behind to carry on the gospel preaching to the brand new church age under the new covenant. And so he lets them know in very comforting terms, and he repeats himself, that he won't leave them alone. He won't leave them without help. And so rather than a to-do list from this text, I just want to compile a short list to answer the question, what are some benefits of a spirit-filled life? What are some benefits of a spirit-filled life? The first benefit we'll just call ability. Ability. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Immediately, and we'll see this multiple times in this text, there's a connection between salvation and obedience. They go together. The true Christian invariably responds to the grace of God with a life of submittedness, submission, service. We proved this point last week um, in the preceding verses. What is Jesus doing here? Basically, what he's about to give them is a while dad is gone speech. You remember getting those when you were a kid? That while the parents are gone, he says, if you love me, implied, while I'm gone, you will keep my commandments. This isn't just a lifestyle of abiding by a set of rules. It's a lifestyle motivated by love, driven by love, informed by love, empowered by love. It's motivated by gratitude for the salvation that's been given in Christ. In fact, the link between love and obedience will really become very much the theme, the drumbeat of the Apostle John in his later writings. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Three times in three verses, love and obedience go together. Now, this isn't speaking of sinless perfection, obviously. What it is speaking, though, it's speaking of a heart that truly yearns and desires to obey, to be pleasing to the Lord. And this includes doing those things that your sinful flesh doesn't want to do, and it includes not doing those things that your sinful flesh does want to do. Now, how did the disciples... How did they work on their obedience? How did they work on their sanctification? Well, for them, everything they did happened right in front of Jesus. And so he was there to teach them to say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. If you did a study in all four Gospels of how many times Jesus corrected his disciples, the, the precise number is 1,418,000 times, approximately. He's constantly there. Every time they said something wrong, Jesus was there to correct them. What a great thing. Can you imagine how much more quickly your sanctification would go if Jesus was walking with you all the time? You didn't just have a a WWJD bracelet on. You had Jesus there to tell you. Well, that's how they learned. That's why they grew into mighty men of God in such a short period of time. And so Jesus promises that help will continue. It won't stop. He says in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Another helper. This is a very important word because it's, it's a word that means a helper that's like me. It's the same kind of help. That just as Jesus has been their help, now the Holy Spirit will fulfill the same function. And what is a helper? 
The Greek word is parakletos, and that becomes important because uh, it's used over and over again. It's a broad term that has lots of different uses. A helper is a counselor. A helper is an exhorter, an encourager. It's even used in a legal sense to be an advocate, to be the attorney for somebody who needs help, so to speak. And in fact, that's exactly the same word, helper, that's used to describe Jesus. In 1 John 2, verse 1, we have an advocate, parakletos, a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, this is specifically the realm of Jesus advocating for our spiritual continued salvation before the Father. But the personal presence of the Holy Spirit will replace the physical presence of Christ. And so that's their source of encouragement. That's their source of strength while they remain on the earth. And this is brand new information to them. This is, this is mind-blowing to them. This is why he repeats himself over and over again here. We've already seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit mentioned in John's Gospel. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, chapter 1. Jesus emphasized the role of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, chapter 3. He highlighted the role of the Holy Spirit in true worship, chapter 4, and he highlighted the role of the Holy Spirit in giving spiritual life in chapter 6. But now, this is an expansion. This is new information. The role of the Holy Spirit is expanded in the understanding of the disciples, and he's giving this information, giving them information now about what it's going to be like to live in a post-Jesus world. And they need this. How his people will continue to be helped In fact, this is the first of five times that Jesus mentions the parakletos, the helper, to the encouragement of his disciples. And he says in verse 16, the helper will be with you forever. This will be very important for them to know that there will be this continuity, that in the helper you'll have everything you had in me, he's saying, that will never change. All the wisdom I gave you, all the guidance I gave you, you'll have it all. And by the way, this very clearly indicates that salvation in Christ is a permanent deal. It's a permanent transaction. A Christian, by definition, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and this can't ever be undone. Jesus further describes the Helper as the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. Now, why does this sound familiar to us? Because he just said in verse 6, I am the way and the truth. And you notice that he said, I am the truth, meaning the only truth, and yet he equates now the Spirit of God with the truth. So there's great continuity. Now the identity of the parakletos, the helper, is made clear. He is the Spirit of truth. He's obviously closely connected with Christ. Jesus is the truth, but he will ask the Father to send the Spirit of truth. This is a name that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit three times. So what's the connection between Jesus, who is the truth, and the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth? Well, John's gospel gives us really some detailed understanding. Truth is understood in several ways in John's gospel. And I I just want to walk through this so we can make the connection between Christ and the spirit of truth. How is truth understood in John's gospel? Well, first of all, truth as opposed to falsehood. Truth as opposed to falsehood to, to give a right representation of the spiritual facts. John 8, 46 and following, Jesus said, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
He's claiming that every word he says is true. Truth as opposed to falsehood. Truth is also used in John's gospel as the greatest final expression of God. The greatest final expression of God. We might call this end times truth. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's the culmination. Truth is also used, as, as we often think of it, simply as the content of knowledge about God. The content of knowledge about God. John 8.32, Jesus said, and you will know the truth, the content of the knowledge about God, and the truth will set you free. But it becomes very personal to us because truth is also used in John's gospel as the sphere of our obedience. It's the sphere of our obedience. We have obedience in worship. John 4.23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? Truth. They go together. And there's obedience in not only in worship, but obedience in sanctification. John 17.17, 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so there's this deep connection to us personally. And then, of course, ultimately, it's used as truth being found in Christ, that he is the, the, the culmination. He is the definition of truth. Back to John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I point this out because those uses of truth in John's gospel now brings us to a, a condensed, a, 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 a boiled down understanding of the relationship between the Spirit of God and the Son of God. Because every one of those aspects of truth ultimately point to Christ, which is the main ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God accurately represents the truth about Christ. He is the greatest and final expression of God in this age. We have the Spirit of Christ. He gives the truth about God manifested in Christ. He's vital to both worship and sanctification through Christ. And he directs people to Jesus Christ. So be faithful to him. Now, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It is inappropriate for a church to use the symbol of the dove, to use the symbol of the Holy Spirit as their logo, because the ministry of the Spirit is to point to the cross, is to point to Christ. And for the disciples, this deep connection between the Spirit of God and the Son of God is going to have a very practical application Because verse 26 will tell us that it will be the Spirit that brings to their remembrance all that Jesus taught them. And you know what we have because of that? We have our Bible. We have our New Testament. But the Spirit of truth helps us now in a very specific way concerning the truth of God. It is the Holy Spirit who makes the Word of God expressed in Scripture understandable, makes it minister to our souls and change our lives. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 15 has this long section that basically says, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand the word of God. You cannot understand the spiritual things of God. You can't grasp it. An intelligent, unsaved person can read the Bible, and if he's being intellectually honest, he can come away with some level of understanding. But for even the most intelligent unbeliever, The Bible doesn't come alive as the living, breathing Word of God. He doesn't tremble under the authority of Scripture. He certainly doesn't rejoice at the pleasures and the comforts and the joy found in Scripture. He isn't astounded at the scope of the redemptive plan of God. 
Only the believer in Christ who possesses the Holy Spirit has that level of understanding of the truth. And you know what's so amazing to me is to see a brand new baby believer, someone who just made a profession of faith and comes to church the very next week and says, I, I read my Bible and, and, and I say, your eyes look a little bloodshot. I know, I, I was reading like dozens of chapters. I, I couldn't stop. I had one young man tell me, and he looked like he'd been run over by a truck. I said, what happened to you? He said, I read the whole New Testament every day this week. Wow. And it's coming alive. Because the Spirit of God illumines the Word of God. And so all of this ability that we have given by the Holy Spirit, Jesus has said, if you love me, implied while I'm gone, you will keep my commandments. But, but he enables this faithfulness. But what's the ability we've seen? The Holy Spirit is our helper, our, our advocate. He's the spirit of truth who unlocks the word of God for us and points us to Christ. And he's dependable. He'll be with us forever. What ability? What help? But because the world is completely estranged from the spirit of God, an unbeliever can't just decide to know the truth. Jesus says in verse 17, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. Now, this is all theoretical and this is all theological. Let's get down to, to brass tacks here. I think a good question is, how do you access the ability of the Holy Spirit? How do you access the enablement to obey Christ? I don't think there's a great mystery to this. I don't think there's a need to be overly mystical Verse 13, Jesus has just referenced praying to the Father for divine enablement. Verse 14, he referenced praying to the Son for divine enablement. Then he says the Holy Spirit will be sent as your helper. Now, if your access to the Father is through prayer and your access to the Son is through prayer, how would you access the Spirit of truth, your helper? Here's a radical thought. How about through prayer? Here's an even more radical thought. How about the idea of praying to the Father and praying to the Spirit who indwells you simultaneously? Romans 8, beginning in verse 26, says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And what does that prayer look like? It looks like this. Father, I find myself in this pain and this need, and I'm so tempted to respond badly. I'm not even certain what to say. Spirit of God, help me. Tell the Father what he needs to hear. Tell him what I ought to say. That's how you access the ability of the, of the Spirit. Anybody who says that we're supposed to pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit, but you should never pray to the Spirit, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's like the Father saying, uh, Jesus and Holy Spirit, plug your ears. Somebody's praying right now. They're not supposed to talk to you. That's silly. The Spirit is our helper. What do you do with a helper? You talk to him. You ask for what? Help. First benefit we have is ability. There's a second benefit of the Spirit-filled life. We'll call it familiarity. Familiarity. Look with me at verse 18. What comfort Jesus gives. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, what's he mean here? Uh, The more immediate emphasis here is very simply that Jesus would see them again after the resurrection. He won't leave them as a child without parents. He uses the metaphor of orphan because this really matches the level of anguish that they're going to feel when he finally does die. That when he dies, this is going to crush them. It's going to devastate them. And so far, they haven't comprehended his coming resurrection. And so he gives them comfort that they can understand at at least a very bare emotional level. And remember, they've done everything together for three and a half years. They've lived as a traveling ministry group during that time. They slept by the side of the same roads. They ate together. They walked together. They witnessed, uh, the disciples witnessed firsthand every sermon and every miracle of Jesus. They saw it all. They heard it all. And the level of connection they had with Christ is really indescribable. And we're built as human beings to bond with one another because we spend time together and that bond develops. We're also built as human beings to do, as we do things, we bond together. And we're built as human beings if we do something important and lofty together, we bond together. Well, the disciples and Jesus did all three. They spent all their time together. They did everything together. And everything they did, quite literally, was the most important thing on earth. And so what, what a bond. It's indescribable. And so we can see why Jesus takes what we have as all of John 13 and John 14 and John 15 and John 16 and John 17. All of that space in your Bible, it's loaded in red if you have a red leather edition. All of that space to comfort them. And this is the comfort. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The comfort a father gives a child who doesn't understand what's happening. When I was a little boy, I was a sensitive and often fearful child, but I've grown out of that to be a sensitive and often fearful adult now. (laughs) And one time when I was five, my parents were going away, and I couldn't grasp what was happening. And I still today remember how I felt. I remember the fear. I remember the anxiety. I remember the sheer panic that I sensed. But I also remember the words that my dad said over and over and over again. I'm coming back. He said it over and over again. That's what got me through. And so Jesus will be raised from the dead and and he'll appear to them once again. That's the immediate stress here, that the immediate accent that he's saying. But in the broader context of the whole passage, the text has to go further than that. It, it must emphasize the coming of the Spirit of God because that level of comfort is not ultimately going to be satisfied simply in seeing Jesus for 40 days or so after his resurrection. Because after that, he's leaving again, and this time it's for good. And so he has to give them a higher level of comfort. Just as God was present with them through Christ, now God will be present with them through the Holy Spirit. And look back at the end of verse 17. He speaks to them of the Spirit. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, to a certain degree, the Spirit of God was with the disciples at that moment. The Holy Spirit didn't come to earth for the first time at Pentecost. It's not that the Spirit of God was somehow completely absent from the true faithful in the Lord before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Old Testament saints, and we would characterize the disciples still as Old Testament saints, 
he was regenerate in that he had what the Old Testament called a circumcised heart. There was clearly an internal reality of faith, but the Holy Spirit dwelt with the faithful more in community rather than in the individual intimate indwelling that that the unique ministry of the, of the Spirit would come only at Pentecost. And so there was a community sense of the Spirit, not so much an individual sense of the Spirit. So we could say that Jesus is reminding them that they are familiar with the Holy Spirit. But I think he's saying something much more simple than that. He's saying that they know the Holy Spirit because they know Jesus. He said, he dwells with you. In other words, all that you need to know is right here in me. Romans 8, 9 says that Christians are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And so Jesus is telling them that the Spirit of God who dwells with them will now dwell in them. And there will be a, a familiarity that as the Spirit of God brought back to mind every word that Jesus had ever taught them, as they read and studied the Old Testament scriptures from which they preached at first, and as they are gloriously filled with the Spirit at Pentecost and spoke with boldness, by the way, in 15 new languages that they hadn't learned before, as they were empowered for the gospel ministry, as they knew the right words to say, knew the right things to do, as they witnessed the tremendous growth of the church, as they preached and as they taught and as they worshipped and as they fellowshiped, as they experienced with the men on the road to Emmaus at the end of the Gospel of Luke, experienced when they were with the resurrected Jesus and they said that their hearts were burning within them in all these things. How very clear it became that Jesus had never left them at all. That the Holy Spirit in the person, uh, that Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit was now in them and working through them. How are you intimately familiar with the Holy Spirit? It's very simply because you know Jesus. You know Jesus from the scriptures. We don't mix the roles of the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit of God didn't die on the cross. But in terms of character, of essence, of attributes, knowing Christ is knowing the Spirit. So as you learn and, and ponder and meditate and hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, you're only getting more familiar with the Spirit of God. We say, rightly so, Colossians 1.28, that our role at Grace Bible Church is to proclaim Christ. But that's not to the exclusion of God the Father. That's not to the exclusion of God the Spirit. Because as we know Christ, we know the Father. And as we know Christ, we know the Spirit. It is ironic to me that the Spirit who indwells us is the member of the Trinity that we're often least familiar with. The first benefit of the Spirit-filled life, ability. Second benefit, familiarity. Let me give you a third benefit. We'll call it certainty. Certainty. Verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Yet a little while, Jesus is just a few hours from his arrest, his trials, his torture, his crucifixion. The world won't see him after that, but the, the apostles will, the believers will. Now, the immediate emphasis here, again, is that he will appear to them again after his resurrection. But the ministry of Jesus to the world is now done. It's finished. No one but his own ever saw him after his resurrection. Did you know that? 
In some miraculous fashion, Jesus kept his identity hidden from all who saw him unless he chose to disclose himself. We saw that on the road to Emmaus. Two believers who didn't even recognize him until he opened their eyes to recognize him. So as far as the world was concerned, Jesus was gone. Now, of course, there was the small matter of the fact that his grave was empty, the 6,000-pound stone was rolled away, and a platoon of Roman guards had passed out. But other than that, he's gone. The world wouldn't physically see Jesus again. And by the way, without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the world will not spiritually comprehend him as well. Why? Ephesians 2.1 says that the world is spiritually dead. Jude 19 says they are devoid of the Spirit. And so he gives this certainty that they will see him again. And he continues in verse 19, Because I live, you also will live. The resurrection of Christ verified that the payment for sin was complete, that God's wrath was fully appeased, fully satisfied, and now resurrection life was available to all who would believe on the Lord. But once again, the larger context goes further than just the resurrection. It is more to say that because Jesus lives, because he's been resurrected, he will go to the Father and he will send the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, we will live. All believers are given new life. The disciples, by receiving the coming and dwelling of the Spirit, they would be sealed until the day of redemption. Was it theoretically possible for someone to lose his salvation prior to the indwelling of the Spirit? Some would argue both sides of this, but I would say that Judas might be one example if we went that direction. But now... Now, Ephesians 1, 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In context, to the praise of whose glory? The Holy Spirit's glory. If you read Ephesians 1, there's one phrase that gives glory to the Father, one phrase that gives glory to the Son, and one phrase that gives glory to the Spirit. This is the certainty of the permanence of salvation. The idea of being able to lose your salvation is ludicrous when considering the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Christ guarantees your resurrection life and the Spirit of God seals forever your new life as a new creation in Christ. And we get even more certainty from Jesus. Verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Again, in that day finds its immediate fulfillment at the resurrection and its ultimate fulfillment after the ascension. The coming of the Holy Spirit will confirm all all of his words, all of these things that Jesus had been, been speaking of and they've been kind of scratching their head about. It made sense because the Spirit made it make sense. They'll fully understand the union of Christ with his Father and their union with Christ, our union with Christ. We get beautiful illustrations in the New Testament of our union with Christ, that certainty. Jesus is the vine where the branches were connected. We're the body. Jesus is the head. We're connected. We're the stones of a spiritual house. Jesus is the cornerstone. We're connected. We're the bride. Jesus is the groom. We're connected. Jesus is the foundation, and we build on that foundation, 1 Corinthians 3. Listen, the words that Jesus said that he will be with you, 
And he said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. You're betting your soul on the truthfulness of those words, aren't you? You're counting on those words to be true for that moment you take your final breath. You're counting on the fact that when Jesus said, you will see me, you will see me, you will see me, that it will come true. And what gives you that certainty? It is the Spirit of God within you. This sweet certainty, it's not something you guess at. It's not just a theological propositional truth. It's not just something off the page of a theology book. It's not just some objective truth that we look at without emotion. There's an internal component to this certainty as well. And it's confirmed to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is a tremendous truth that there is this, the, the Holy Spirit empowering you to know that you 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 are in Christ. And ultimately, that's our greatest assurance. Now, not all Christians enjoy that certainty, even though it is yours in Christ through the Holy Spirit. If you don't enjoy that certainty, it could be that you're hanging on to a special sin that you love a little bit too much that undermines your certainty. It could be that like Rachel of old, Jacob's wife, that you're hiding some idols where nobody can see them. This is exactly what Paul addressed in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's where we get that certainty. You want to get your certainty back? Keep in step with the Spirit. Do what He says. Obey the Bible. Do the things the Spirit of God commands, and all His commands are found in Scripture. What a tremendous benefit, the certainty of your salvation. There's nothing better. One more benefit. First one is ability. Second, familiarity. Third, certainty. Final benefit of the Spirit-filled life, trinity. Trinity. In the Old Testament, the person of the triune God, that God is one God in three persons who are all the same essence, yet distinct in identity, the Old Testament presents this truth in shadowed form. But with the coming of Christ and subsequently with the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the people of God, the Trinitarian nature of God just absolutely explodes off the pages of the New Testament. It's everywhere. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now we have this often repeated theme again of the identity of the true believer seen in his life, that love for Christ and obedience to Christ go together. The believer will be loved by Jesus, he'll be loved by the Father, and Christ will manifest himself to him. Manifest, it's a word that means to reveal, to make known. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word to speak of theophanies, of God making himself visually seen. And how will Jesus make himself known? How will he manifest himself? What is the theophany by which Christ will be known? And this is through the Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, you know this. You've had times in the Word, you've had times in prayer where you think if you open your eyes fast enough, you would see Christ right there. 
and you sense him. Now, the disciples are still thinking in terms of the physical manifestation of Christ to the world. As he would, as they thought, establish his kingdom. So this is still confusing for them. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How sad that for the rest of his life, this Judas would have to qualify his own name. Elsewhere, he's called Judas, son of James. I think there's a reason that he often went by his other name, Thaddeus. I think that's just easier for everybody. We'll just go by Thaddeus here. But it is a reasonable question. How will we see you, but no one else will? That doesn't make sense. And so he answers them indirectly. Jesus answered him, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, he's emphasizing the coming of the Spirit as the manifestation of God, the manifestation of Christ to the world. This is the great and unique feature of the church age in which we live. No other group of believers in God has ever had what we have, the indwelling of the Spirit of God himself. And the effect of the coming of the Spirit will be that to those whom the Spirit comes, they'll love Christ, they'll obey Christ, they'll desire Christ. By the way, those who run away from the idea, who deny the idea that the Christian life is a submitted, obedient life, they smash into a wall when they get to this text. This truth is repeated in verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24, four times in the span of 10 verses. Obedience isn't the cause of salvation. The Spirit of God is the cause of salvation, but obedience is the result of salvation, the result of a transformed heart, which is now a conduit to simply live out the wishes of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And so Jesus doesn't directly answer Thaddeus' question here, but he emphasizes again the coming of the Spirit that the manifestation of God to the world will be something that we know about, but the rest of them don't know. And did you catch this unique statement? In fact, it's so unique that this is the only time in all the New Testament we ever see it, that for the believer in Christ, through the Spirit of God, we, God the Father and God the Son, will make our home with him. Our home, this is the same Greek word translated rooms, In John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And look at the comfort in the whole passage. Jesus starts in in chapter 14, starts this section saying that he's going away to prepare a place for us, for them, in his Father's house. But in the meantime, through the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son have come to make their home in your house. That's you. This is a phenomenal statement that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit make their home in you through the Spirit of God. That's remarkable. And by the way, we shouldn't denigrate the glorious presence of the Holy Spirit by reducing them to merely an impersonal power from God or the means to make all my dreams come true, all my wishes for pseudo-spiritual experiences come true. The Holy Spirit is first revealed in the second verse of the Bible and he's last mentioned in the fifth to last verse of the Bible and everywhere in between. He is the Spirit of God. Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. 
He is the spirit of Jesus. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the spirit of his son. He is eternal. Hebrews 9, 14 says that Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit. He is all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says that the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He is everywhere present. Psalm 139, 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He is all powerful. Job 33, 4, the spirit of God has made me. He is the truth. 1 John 5, 6, and the truth is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. He has the power to give life. Romans 8, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 11 says that the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the, from the dead, and this is the same Spirit who will raise you from the dead. He is the Creator. Genesis 1, 2, the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of Jesus. He is eternal. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. He's all-powerful. He is the truth. He has the power to give life. He is Creator God. And just in case we don't get the point, Paul said in 2 Corinthians three seventeen that the Lord is the Spirit. And we're instructed, by the way, and this is why this is special to us, we're instructed to baptize the new believer in Christ in the glorious and mighty name of the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God, who is fully God, who is all of those things, who is creator, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is all-everything that is glorious and magnificent, He's your paracletos. He's your helper. And He gives those benefits of ability, and familiarity, and certainty, and trinity, And his desire is for the effect of his life in you to be manifested, as Paul said in Galatians 5, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the hallmarks of a Spirit-filled life, which in turn creates a triumphant Christian life. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now on the basis of the cross of Christ. We would run boldly to the throne of grace in thankfulness for all that we can ask from you. And in this unique moment, we would address the Spirit of God and Holy Spirit. I pray that we have accurately represented you from the pages of Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that every believer here would lean on you more would speak to you more, would ask for your help more, for your counsel, for your advocacy, that we would engage your help in prayer, that we would engage your help in in even the moments when we have a moment with another brother or sister where we don't know what to say, where we don't know what to do, even in those moments where we don't know what to think. Spirit of God, would you manifest yourself even more to us through our obedience? through our reliance upon you, we thank you and praise you for all of the the benefits we have because of, of you. And Spirit of God, we would further ask that at the direction of the Father, as 
proclaimed in Ephesians 1, if there is a man or a woman, a boy or a girl here who does not know Christ, Holy Spirit, would you let this be the moment that you change his heart, that you open his eyes to the cross, open his eyes to the wretchedness of his own sin, and open his eyes to the glories of forgiveness that awaits all who would simply ask for grace. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for your plan of salvation. Our dear Savior, we praise you for effecting salvation through your sacrifice on the cross, through your resurrection, through your ascension into heaven. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your ministry of opening our eyes because the first thing you ever did for us was to show us Christ. And we praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.